welcome. I'm Nick Roberts, and today I bring you an interview with my dad, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Roberts. As I've mentioned before, this podcast is going to jump around a bit between focuses on technology, history, aviation, and travel, as I come across more interesting topics and interesting people. And look, I know it's somewhat low-hanging fruit to interview your own father, but he's had a storied career and gotten a chance to fly some of the world's premier fighter aircraft, including the F-4 Phantom II and the F-15E Strike Eagle, something only a tiny fraction of men and women get to do. With my eyesight, there's probably little chance that I could have emulated my dad's path, not to mention the obstruction presented by my fear of death. So one apology in advance, we pick up quite a bit of background noise in the house during the interview. Somebody was putting the dishes away, and occasionally the drone of the laundry machine kicks in, so sorry for that. But overall, it's clear, and I think it's a great rundown of what it's like to be in the seat of a fighter jet, and you get some interesting you know, personal history in the mix as well. So without further ado, I bring you my father, Scott Roberts. We're jumping right into his story at the beginning right here. Um, well, the shortest version I can think of is I joined the military in 1983, uh, was commissioned as an officer, then went to, had a week off um, from officer training to the start of pilot training. Uh, so that's, I went to one year of pilot training, T-37, T-38, graduated from that uh, in 84, went straight to the RF-4, the reconnaissance version of the F-4 uh, in Austin, Texas. And then uh, after a three-year tour there, moved on to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Williams Air Force Base, and taught in the T-37, the primary Air Force trainer. Um, a three-year tour there, and then got selected for the F-15E Strike Eagle, uh, which I trained in Phoenix as well and then did my first tour in Alaska did four years of F-15Es in Alaska uh, then went to a staff job didn't fly the staff job for three years and then went back and did two more tours in the F-15E Strike Eagle they were back-to-back -back tours in uh, at Lake Neath, England and uh, retired as lieutenant colonel in 2004 nice and uh and and so how did you choose the Air Force like what was the the kind of uh, motivation there well there was a a natural interest in everything mechanical and fast uh, from a very young age uh, when I was single digits I don't know how old I was um, my father got his first airplane he got licensed and got an airplane and we flew the family he, he flew the family on most of our family trips for oh five or six years he did that and then uh, I think uh, my mom got tired of it, and we, we went back to driving. Um, there was a couple of incidents that kind of scared my mom. But uh, anyway, then uh, when I was 17, I started taking some pilot uh, training lessons, but uh, ran out of money or motivation, not sure which, and didn't actually go back and finish my pilot's license until I was 21 when I got my Pilot, private pilot's license. I was attending college and flying, and that worked out pretty well because my father had purchased another aircraft at this point. He was interested in getting back into flying. So we shared that airplane 
for a couple of years. And then, um, uh, so I was flying semi-regularly uh, as I graduated from college and looking around at the job market or what I wanted to do. I really couldn't find anything of interest other than flying. So um, watching fighter jets fly around in the sky, I literally looked up and said, I wonder how you do that. How do you get that job and sit in that seat? And uh, I called a recruiter and, and he explained the process and a few tests, a few applications, a few things, and came back with a pilot training offer. And I took it. And that's, uh, it was during, well, Reagan was a, had been elected in 1980 and he was all about military buildup and they basically couldn't hire people fast enough and especially and including pilots so I, I got caught up in a wave where if you were qualified they gave you an offer and I was qualified but uh, yeah it went pretty smoothly pretty easily for me um, there's a lot of periods of time where uh, it was far more difficult to get accepted into the pilot training program yeah we went through a big pilot training pilot reduction in 89 and 90 as peace broke out in Eastern Europe and, and USSR and fell and all, apart and all of that and guys who were qualified for pilot training and had pilot training slots got turned away and were never able to go to pilot training so I actually feel pretty lucky about my timing yeah yeah and um and so what do you I you know I've heard this uh this uh, almost like you know sort of a derogatory um, phrase in uh, you know uh, from other branches they call the Air Force uh, the Chair Force. What's your what's your reaction to that? Actually, I don't remember being called the Chair Force. <laughs> I'm not sure what that even means. Um, I guess it's like these you know these guys who you know and, and girls who go into the Marines or the the Army, you know, sort of uh, look. Uh, with some level of d disdain on the uh, the comforts of uh, of the air oh, force. Oh well, and, yeah. I, I certainly looked on that as a point of pride. I liked being comfortable. <laughs> right. I, uh, you know, the Marines in particular spend uh, quite a bit of time training as an infantryman before they go to pilot training, and that just didn't have any appeal to me. I liked to, I liked the idea that. The basic idea of the Air Force puts you up in a four-star hotel while the Marines are in tents and slopping around in the mud when they deploy. It worked for me. Yeah, yeah. So and uh, and and so, what was your call sign? Like, what was your? Um, I know that you had like two of them, um, and if you could maybe explain sort of the difference. That no, I... it was really just one, just oh, dog, dog, dog. Gotcha, and. Uh, because I remember there was another one. Um, I, I I don't know if it was just. I don't know. It was what called was uh, Storm. Uh, oh no yeah. no Storm. Uh, so when you when you fly uh, as a flight lead, we just for air ATC communications when we're flying, the the flight had a call sign, and there was just a long list of of those that were approved. You had to deconflict them with all the other squadrons, all the other aircraft flying in the world. You had to deconflict call signs. Mm. And as a flight lead, we just went down the list and picked from the ones that were available for the at the moment. And so I picked Storm as one of the available 
call signs and use that for a couple of years as I was leading flights. That just was in the UK. Um, in Alaska, it was much more random. We just got a we had a different call sign almost every flight, right. and that's a that's a flight call sign as opposed to an individual's you know nickname. The the dog was like my nickname for it was it was my nickname for for my Air Force time. Yeah, and, and then I went through hundreds of flight call signs. I right. but uh, Storm was I I used that one for quite a while. Yeah. So with with dog, like, what's the the quick and dirty uh, story behind dog? Uh, it's nothing interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, the guys get together um, in the squadron bar and name the new guys, and they came up with that for me, and there was really nothing to it. Um, I, I wish it had more of a story behind it. Well, I, I do seem to remember, you know, there there was a guy, <laughs> there was a guy named Gerber in your squadron. Yeah. <laughs> They named the kid Gerber, um, and because uh, he he had a baby face and looked like the kid on the jar of a Gerber food jar, um, and I don't know. Uh, so his last name was Robert's son. My last name Roberts. They they made the connection that if he's Robert's son and I'm Roberts, that I was the dad of Gerber. So D O G. <laughs> So really dumb, something I don't even really like to talk about. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I actually think it's kind of a funny story. I mean, you know, it is, it is pretty good, though. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, um, when you were in the F4, um, uh, can you uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, what, what your primary mission was? I know you were in an RF4. Um, you know, what, what was the... Uh, you know, if you were to be deployed, like what, what would they kind of... Well, it's reconnaissance. Out? So um, our job was using our sensors, which were primarily film cameras. Mm-hmm. We had some electronic sensors, uh, electro-optical sensors. Um, but primarily we used uh, black and white film, large format stuff. would go through hundreds and hundreds of feet of this uh, like six-inch film on our... Uh, side-looking cameras and we'd get assigned a target uh, often multiple targets because we could go out and do reconnaissance on multiple areas looking at uh, uh, enemy formations was was the idea so you know in Vietnam uh, it was a very risky mission a lot of a lot of R4s got shot down because they had to go right into the thick of enemy defenses to get reconnaissance of where they were positioned and what weapons they were using. So yeah. um, the missions were predominantly low level uh, because, well, that's where you got the best reconnaissance and that was considered a, a defensive position for the Vietnam era. Uh, and then we trained both medium altitude and low altitude uh, going going too high you lose resolution on the on the camera so it wasn't that effective so going lower and faster was kind of the the theme of the rf4 so we did a lot of very low altitude flying and we had uh, terrain following radar so we could operate at night and in infrared cameras so we could do the reconnaissance at night as well and that was done quite a bit right right 
And uh, what, what sort of loadout did you carry on the on that Ford? Like if you're the RF4 is, yeah. was unarmed, it just carried the oh. cameras. Wow. So uh, I mean, did did these uh, the you know people flying the RF4? You know, what would happen if they got into like a tangle with like a, a MiG-21 or something like that? Well, your defense was speed. Um, you know, you're <laughs> gonna just um, turn away and out accelerate them, which we could do. The RF-4 was a pretty clean jet and could out accelerate almost everything. But you know, when you're flying in a any pretty much any combat situation, there's gonna be other aircraft airborne. So uh, that you know you go defensive and and uh, do your best to get uh, somebody else targeting the uh, uh, the adversary mm-hmm. if there's uh, fighters in the area right. so but that was our mission our whole mission was reconnaissance wow. uh, they didn't want us anchored uh, dog fighting with anybody so we didn't have any weapons yeah well and before we move on to uh, kind of your experience with the strike eagle um, what I was what I was uh, hoping you could you could tell me was uh, a little bit about uh, you know that experience uh, with the Grand Canyon uh, you were mentioning the oh, other day. Yeah, there was. Well, it was, was in the '80s, and the Grand Canyon had some flight restrictions, but you could fly down to the rim on a just a visual flight. Um, and so there was two of us. Uh, I was leading a two ship coming out of Las Vegas on the way to our home base in Austin, Texas, Bergstrom, and. Uh, we were going to stop for fuel anyway on the way home, so we had extra time to burn. So I just took the flight and uh, cleared off of our flight plan to just a visual um, VFR flight, and we just took the formation and dropped down to the Grand Canyon and spent not a terribly long time, probably five or ten minutes, flying the rim of the Grand Canyon. And, uh, I mean, that's about all it took to fly the from uh, Lake Mead to Lake Powell was sort of the, wow. the route. And um, how fast do you think you were going at the rim? Oh, uh, we were doing 480. That was our standard low altitude yeah. flight speed. So wow. you were, we had to stay above the rim because you, you couldn't make the corners down in the canyon. Yeah. Um, but we were just zipping along. Yeah, super cool. So how did you end up transitioning to the F-15? Well, as I said, the there was a jet in between the t-37 right uh so you you get out of one jet coming out of the t-37 um there you know all the fighters were i guess available and needs of the air force take priority and the rf-4 was being wound down it was they were shutting squadrons and retiring the aircraft they continued to fly for quite a few more years after i switched that 15 but they were definitely in a wind-down mode, and the F-15E was in production, and they were building up squadrons, and it was the, you know, um, it was a, they needed more pilots, so uh, it was a natural fit for me to come out of the, the uh, T-37. I was going to have to go to retraining anywhere, even if I went to the RF-4, I'd have to go back to a refresher course, and so it was easy to put me in the F-15E. Frankly, you know, uh, one one other question I had uh, just along these lines was, you know, um, uh, I actually have a, a kind of a friend of a friend who is in the Air Force and uh, apparently, you know, got assigned to uh, trainers, um, you know, with his, you know, he was uh, in his, uh, you know, the, the 
class of folks yeah. graduating from pilot school and you know a bunch of guys got assigned to a cargo plane he got assigned to to trainers and um you know i was talking to uh uh you know my, my friend about it and um you know he he mentioned that this guy was um you know kind of bummed uh frankly to get well, some trainers it's, and, uh, you know is, is it the end of the world no or, no uh, not at all it's yeah. a good assignment i yeah. mean it's not what everybody wants but uh, again it sort of needs their force they they retain uh, graduates from pilot training, and it should be taken as a compliment because they keep the kids that they like, you know, uh, and think will be good instructors. So you get to know everybody gets to know you really well because you're in training for a year, and uh, then coming out of that assignment uh, from teaching. And do you, do you happen to know if it was the T six or T thirty eight? I think it was the T six. I want to say. So that's the primary trainer. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a it's a good trainer but coming out of that assignment he'll have all of the aircraft in the air force at you know as options so he coming out of that and going to a fighter later is a common enough path i mean i did uh my f4 tour first then training and i wasn't that excited about going back to basic pilot training and teaching but it it's a good tour in the sense that you get uh, a lot of good experience and you're teaching the people can be pretty satisfied watching them learn how to do their first loop or something so yeah and, and so when you when you made that transition was i mean i know they can't like promise you you know you're gonna you're gonna end up in a you know one of the the top fighter aircraft in the world eventually no. but you know i mean uh uh did was there some expectation when you transitioned to the trainers that it was just going to be a temporary thing and you know you're yeah you, you it's natural progression there for several you you're going to do it most people are going to do a tour teaching sometime right. often a couple of tours right. um, so it is a, it's just part of the system you can't keep and don't want to keep everybody in frontline squadrons all the time because you want to transition people through it's all about training and building experience across the air force the, the peacetime military is all about training and then having those combat ready pilots um you know for if you're combat ready for a three-year tour there's there's part of part of the system is okay that we don't want to burn people out we're going to put them in something else mm -hmm. uh and you might teach in fighters but you're going to go through a training tour somewhere right. along the way i can't think of anybody that that didn't right. really go through some teaching tour. it's just kind of random which aircraft you're teaching though right right that makes tons of sense and and so when you did finally make the transition to the f-15 um could you talk, talk talk to me a little bit about you know what was that uh what was that like to go from the i mean the flying experience of the f-4 to the f-15 like what were the the primary um differences that you noticed well there um you know their sibling aircraft the f-15 was was built by McDonnell Douglas at the time, which had designed and built the F-4. So uh, people often referred to the the F-15 as an F-4 with every all the problems fixed. That, <laughs> um, you know, it had more power, was more maneuverable, but the general performance parameters were about the same. Uh, the the, uh, the F-15 out accelerators had more power, but not by much. It wasn't really that dramatic a difference top speeds were really similar in the Mach 2 plus range and uh, you know the 
G limit in the F4 was about seven Gs, uh, but it couldn't sustain it very long. The G limit in the F15 is nine Gs, so it's that's a significant difference when, when you feel it on your body that the pain point for pulling G's for me was about seven and a half G's. Anything over about seven, seven and a half G's was really painful, but still the, the F15 couldn't sustain really high G's very long. They were fairly short uh, durations and then the airspeed would drop and the G's would drop. Right. But these are, these are all fairly nuanced differences. Right. And, you know, in terms of reliability, like the, was the F15 like a big step up? Well, yeah, the, F-15 had its own issues, um, but it was a brand new aircraft compared to what was then a 25 or 30 year old F-4. So we ended up with the newer aircraft just performed a lot better. And over the life of the F-15, it seemed to just, like I said, it was the F-4 with a lot of the problems fixed. So uh, things that the hydraulic system on the F-4 was notorious for leaking, and that seemed to be resolved in that 15 we didn't really have a lot of those problems but we had a lot more electronics to worry about and uh, the radar is very sophisticated radar but it moves back and forth across the nose every only takes a couple of seconds to sweep back and forth so there's there's little uh there's a lot of wear and tear on this antenna slamming back and forth all day long so we'd lose we often had radar failures that was one of the biggest issues we had and the F-15 is all about the radar, so you lose that and you ground the aircraft and jump to the spare. Right. And, uh, I mean, I know we've talked a lot about this um, just, you know, um, off uh, off mic, but, uh, you know, if, uh, so what what is the um, what is the competitive, competitive advantage that the F-15, you know, C or E kind of brings to the, to the fight? Like, what, how, what is it designed? Well, going back to the design point and, you know, the, the design of the F-15 came out of Vietnam where the F-4 was very challenged. You know, it, it was the, F, the MiG-21 was quite a handful for the F-4. And so they wanted an aircraft that could dominate the skies. Uh, the, you know, the, the term at the time was air superior fighter that was going to be the best fighter in the sky. And they built it... Uh, to compete with the MiG-21 and then the MiG-25 Foxbat, which was really a, a an unknown aircraft. They they observed it going Mach 2.8 on radar and and figured it was going to be a highly maneuverable, really dominant fighter. And so they're trying to build an F-15 to beat something that they really don't know very well, which is the MiG-25. But it was uh, it came out. Uh, of production when it, when they when they built it, it it met most of these specs that they thought they had to meet it was a high g maneuver, you know, 9g aircraft which can pull the tightest turn of anything in the sky that they knew of at the time and still went to mach 2.5 um, and then the radar was a core design feature um, the diameter of the radar was the basis of the diameter of the airframe it was all about the radar and uh, it, it was cutting edge pulse doppler um, it, it had high prf medium prf uh, features which allowed it to uh, a lot of flexibility on how you operate the radar but the first look first shot was the idea then um, 
Yeah. And, uh, and uh, just on that note, so, I mean, yeah, so, like, the F-15 was, you know, kind of designed around its radar. It was, you know, uh, meant to, to take first shot, first kill. And that seems to be, like, the predominant, you know, Air Force strategy. I mean, even now with the, yeah. you know, 35 and the 22. Um, you know, why do you think the... I mean, I, I don't know if, if you can speculate on this because you know, you're not Soviet, but uh, wh- like, why do you think the Russians did not emphasize or try to go toe to toe with the United States, um, you know, in, in their aircraft design? It seems like they're more, you know, focused on uh, BFM dominance, uh, BFM standing for uh, basic fighter maneuvers for anyone who doesn't know that. You know, it's close in uh, sub 10 nautical mile fights. Why do you think the Russians kind of tried to go that route instead? Well, I don't agree that they tried to go that route i think they wanted to you know uh the the su-27 flank, uh, flanker um was designed after the f-15 was fielded um it, i don't remember the time difference but it was a matter of years between the f-15 going into production it was about a decade later i think that the su-27 went into production and I think they wanted to beat the F-15 on all fronts, um, but just technical limitations. They just uh, they have a good radar, but not a great radar. They have good missiles, just not great missiles. I think they went to the the uh, edge of their technical capabilities and just couldn't quite field something that had the the long range uh, advantages of the F-15. But they did very well in developing a, a high thrust to weight ratio, high energy aircraft um, that maneuvered very well. Yeah. And I know um, just kind of while we're on this topic, I mean, I know you flew the Strike Eagle, you know, and that the primary mission there was, you know, air to ground. But, um, you know, I, I know, I mean, it, it's fully capable to do air to air combat as well. Um, what was the, um, you know, at the time, uh, what was the adversary that, you know, you're sort of most um, apprehensive of getting in a tangle with uh, the SA-10. The SA-10. If you, could you explain more about that? I actually don't know a lot about it. Uh, SA stands for surface oh. to air. <laughs> oh yeah, surface to air missile. Yeah. Uh, and uh, ten was just one of the yeah. highly capable missiles. All the our biggest threat, in my opinion, was the surface to air. Uh, or integrated air defense systems uh, that used um, uh, anti-aircraft artillery. You had, you know, AAA sites which were mobile. You had small mobile surface-to-air missiles like your SA-6, SA-9s. SA-10 was more of a fixed position, highly capable uh, ground defense system. Or, you know, that uh, as a strike eagle, yeah, we had to get to high-value targets. That, that's what we were always targeting, some sort of command and control center, some line of communication or supply routes. Anyway, our idea of high-value targets were also typically highly defended targets. Right. And uh, their best defense were these surface-to-air missiles. They, you could only use them in certain areas because they're expensive to field, so you'd put them around your high-value targets. Um Air to air wise, I we really didn't um, see a lot of air to air threat that was going to be uh, really all that bad. Uh, you know, the flankers, are, you know, the best aircraft that uh, adversary aircraft that we were going to deal with. But again, we, we felt like we had a long range advantage. Uh, we could 
see them coming. We knew where they were. Uh, we could engage on our terms. Uh, the C models, you know, were there, and F-16s all carrying AMRAAM. The flankers were going to have a tough time getting, being a big threat to us. Because um, uh, you could kind of keep them at arm's length. Yeah, and and we just. Um, we typically just fight with enough firepower that, uh, you know, the air-to-air threat, it, it was certainly there, but we we never, in, in my career, we never went up against a big air-to-air, a big air force. Right. You know, the Iraqi Air Force and Serbian uh, conditions were such that we just had a complete dominance of uh, the air with respect to aircraft. So the surface-to-air missiles were were the threat and we had um, wild weasels shooting harms at them anti-radiation missiles to suppress the surface terror um, yeah right so in, and could you explain like a, a little bit more about what the wild weasels are because I, I know I've heard that term but I'm not you know super familiar well the wild weasels are just a de- designation for um, aircraft that have a primary mission uh, SEED is the acronym of suppression of enemy air defenses and what that means, and um, so for a long time, the F-4 carried that mission as a primary mission. Uh, the F-16s, there's a there's a group of them with the primary mission of uh, a wild weasel mission, and then the Navy has their version as well with the F-18, and they have more they carry more sophisticated radar or, um, electronic sensors, so they can target the uh, surface air missiles more accurately they can monitor the frequencies and they know exactly what they're targeting and then they have uh, the harm missile the agm 88 can um, sense the radars quite accurately and will fly to the radar and its its mission is to hit the radar and destroy that so that the system is blind is blind um and so the natural, you know, reaction to a Soviet missile or any or surface air missile, they'll turn off their radar. But once you have a location, then then the missiles will fly uh, based on GPS and hit that spot and still suppress it. But really, as long as they turn off their radars and they go blind, you've suppressed them long enough, hopefully, for the fighters to get in, attack the targets, and get back out. Right. And I know, you know, you just uh, reminded me with the, you know, the, the Serbian and sort of the Bosnian conflict um, going on in the, you know, mid 90s or so. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, when I was four years old, I obviously remember doing, we did a tour in Italy. And I was wondering if you could just kind of uh, explain a little bit what, what you were doing in Italy, um, you know, in the, the cross branch uh, sort of NATO operation there. Yeah, there was a, a NATO command and control center. So, um, Vicenza, Italy is where that was. And from our desk, uh, our center, we had representatives from all NATO countries that were involved. So we had, uh, it was a very diverse group of people. It was commanded by a a three-star Air Force general. And we created all the mission taskings for all the aircraft involved, uh, selected targets, ran it through, and and scheduled all the support aircraft, AWACS and tankers and, and airborne command and control. And then all the fighters that were being tasked with, you know, all the NATO aircraft were involved. So, 
anything from the tornado to the F-16. Well, F-16s are widely deployed across NATO. The F-15Cs and Es, uh, Navy was involved with their F-18s and even F-14s were involved at that time. So we had to integrate all of that, and we had representatives from all of the aircraft all at this NATO Command and Control Center. Just to cut in here with a little bit of extra context, so my dad actually did two tours in Italy. The first was in 1997, uh, which is the one where I was along for the ride. And then he's actually about to talk about his experience in 1999 when he went back to the same installation uh, to assist with operations during the Kosovo War against the Serbian forces under Slobodan Milosevic. Without the army kept wanting to move in and demanded that they, they in order to end this conflict, we had to have boots on the ground. Uh, but it was it's the one and only conflict in so far where air power alone was used to suppress an enemy, and and it worked. Uh, and Milosevic capitulated, and, and it, the, the whole uh, conflict came to an end. Right. Do you think that was the model that they were trying to, uh, you know, carry over into Syria and uh, or, or Libya and, and places like that? And uh, it's all for well, the doctrine that uh, um, I actually went to an air campaign course for a while, and the doctrine was for years the Air Force preached, you know, air war only. Uh, and with enough air power, enough suppression of uh, the enemy, not defenses, but also offenses, that uh, we believe that capitulation from air power alone was possible. But the Bosnia conflict was the first time it was, it was used uh, and, and was successful. And uh, so uh, just moving on a, a little bit from that, I, I was also wondering, you know, did you have any close calls or, um, you know, when you were flying where, you know, you, you almost crashed or yeah. you almost, you know, you almost had to pull the eject lever and anything like that? No, um, I really didn't have anything too dramatic. The, you know, some of the most dangerous uh, conditions are, are just flying close, you know, with your own formation, um, making sure your wingman, you know where your wingman is, and that they're you're not going to have uh, basically crash with your own wingman or these large scale exercises. You just you have aircraft everywhere, and keeping track of everyone when you're in a big turning fight and it's just a big furball. It gets a little dicey to just keep track of everybody and. And uh, occasionally you get a wing flash, somebody zipping by that you didn't see, and you're going, well, I'm glad that worked out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like you, you also just made me think of, um, you know, your experience at Red Flag, um, you know, yeah. just by talking about this this kind of massive operation. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit, bit about that experience um, and then also, you know, kind of how many times, you know, you went through that. Well, let me just introduce red flag red flag Great. is a is a large force exercise that was developed uh post vietnam when they did uh sort of a, a debrief or or study of vietnam experience and how that went they came up with the uh conclusion that 
if you could survive your first 10 combat missions, your chance of survival went up dramatically. So the, the challenge was then to create a, sit, a scenario where you could get 10 combat missions before you went to combat, <laughs> which uh, was red flag. They wanted to create a large force war game exercise that came as close to simulating combat as they could. So it's it's a pretty sophisticated, very complicated uh, setup is they have to have not just airborne adversaries, but you have all the ground defenses set up at a fully integrated defense system like you would run into in in a fairly well defended country. And a lot of it, you know, uh, it was based on the Vietnam uh, system, but again, the, it was adapted uh, to new world threats all the time and, and kept it's been kept current and it's been going on now for decades. So it's set up in Las Vegas at Nellis Air Force Base and there's a large chunk of airspace north of Vegas that's um, a controlled airspace by the Air Force. I mean, most of Nevada is just owned by the military, is it not? <laughs> yeah, this, uh, yeah, I don't know, yeah. I wouldn't say that, but this is a, this is a big chunk of airspace and a lot of the ground is owned by the military but a lot isn't so we're flying over uh, some pretty rural areas and some uh, some farms and ranches and such but there's also but the bombing ranges and everything around them are all federal lands uh, but the airspace above gave us control in any case not to belabor that too much but um, adversary jets uh, simulating MiGs and you know uh, and flankers and fulcrums were flown. There's a dedicated, you know, a couple of dedicated squadrons that base out of Nelson. That's all they do is present adversary red, red air. air, red air. Yeah. Um, and then on the friendly side, we would integrate with everybody. We had uh, every, everything from helicopters to B-52s, all wow. varieties of fighters, AWACS, uh, airborne control. Um, every, we would often generate up to a hundred aircraft permission and so it was a it, in when you funnel it all into the target areas the airspace gets pretty crowded yeah so we would uh, spend a couple of days organizing and coordinating between aircraft um, precise flight profiles for the ground attackers to go in the air to air where the tankers were going to be and and uh, which targets we were taking out. We, it was all run like real world. We would, as um, as the commander of the mission, which I was a few times, the red flag, overall uh, airborne commander. We would get a task in a few days ahead of which targets we needed to take out, uh, what they were simulating, and what defenses Intel would provide, the defenses that we were likely to run into, and then we would create a plan often with a couple of uh, entry tracks, I guess would call them for aircraft to fly to kind of separate the ground attackers from each other, put them on time spacing and have them have ingress paths and egress paths and time over target windows. So everybody was friendly was deconflicted because we have so many friendlies. You'd, it was really, uh, it was, as there was a, big likelihood of conflict so spent a lot of time deconflicting that and then off and then would stack air to air uh typically above the air to ground guys and uh, out in front so they could clear a path 
Wow. And, uh, and you know, speaking of like you know the friendlies that you were flying with, how many countries do you think were represented? Well, on any given red flag, it changes, but NATO is invited to this. Uh, Canadians were invited. Uh, they run a they run a, actually a red flag Alaska, so uh, some of the Pacific theater forces will show up for that. But we um, we had German tornadoes and uh, and a lot of the Brits fl- showed up frequently. But it, uh, my experience was well we. Had, I flew with the French, the Germans, and the Brits uh, at Red Flag. Others showed up from a lot of other countries, but I, in the time I was there, uh, that's all. That's those are the countries that were represented. Right, right. Did you ever um, uh, see or fly with the Indian Air Force? No, because I, no. I'd, I'd heard uh, maybe recently they they'd started participating in those. They probably have. Yeah. Um, but I never flew with the Indian Air Force. Gotcha. Because I, I guess I'm asking because uh, I, I, you know, I heard that they, they, primarily I believe fly like uh, the, Russian aircraft. Yeah, they fly so the they, flanker. Yeah, um, uh, for sure. I don't remember which model. I think they um, also have the MiG twenty nine, the yeah. Fulcrum. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on um, the future of flying? Like. Um, you know, any, any thoughts on what the sixth generation, so to speak, is going to look like? And, you know, where are we headed from here? Well, I mean, here we are, fifth generation, uh, F-22s and F-35s representing the fifth generation. Uh, and they've gone stealthy. They've limited their radar signatures. Uh, they've got more sophisticated electronics, better radars, better electronic sensors and jammers. And that's uh, that's our current state is we have a we have the best aircraft in the world at the moment, and we have uh, advantages to dominate virtually any environment with those aircraft. But the next generation, sixth generation, is, in my opinion, going to be the unmanned force, where you have all these capabilities, but you don't have to put humans at risk. Um, some w- projects that are in the works that I've read about i'm not involved with but read about you know creating these uh wingmen for the f-35 primarily that are unmanned and they can just sick them on targets uh and go after air tar- airborne targets or ground targets and just work as a the f-35 can just work as kind of a battlefield commander for this like swarm yeah a little bit of a swarm yeah. technology but with um what's happening in the unmanned aerial vehicle UAV world I don't see um, that manned vehicles are, are really necessary I think that's the evolution not that I like it but <laughs> I was going to ask but, how you feel about that but I think that uh, it makes sense yeah yeah so um, you know in, in closing I just I wanted to talk about you know our mutual interest which is uh, DCS digital combat simulator just a little bit um, you know I, I was uh, wondering you know kind of what your thoughts were on you know on uh, the game that I know you've, you've been playing it just for you know maybe a few weeks um, you know flying the f15 primarily um, you know what how does how does that sort of experience compare and do you think it is, uh, at all representative of of uh, what it is like to fly an, an aircraft, you know, one of these uh, real jets. Um, there's 
I'm impressed that it's as real as it is. It's, uh, I, I think it, there's a lot of tactics that cross over. There's a lot of things that cross over. But at the core, it's a game. It's, it's a video game. And it, there's just so many things that it can't replicate. You know, you're, you're sitting in your armchair uh, as opposed to pulling nine Gs in a turn. And there's just no comparison. And, and the difficulty level in the real world is, is much higher. It's real risk of getting you know, into either mid-air collision or getting shot down can't be replicated i mean uh in the game everybody dies and you just regenerate turn it back on again uh and you can take you know ex extreme risk in the game because you're gonna be sitting in your armchair in the real world not it's not a big deal so there's it's it's a good replication uh for being a game right yeah and uh and uh, I guess you know, and you know, and uh, I guess one one more question in closing, um, you know, so if you know, you had any advice for someone who is just kind of starting out, um, you know, in, in wanting to pursue a military career or you know, pursue flying um, as a as a career, uh, what you know, what would you say to them uh, if they were just going into pilot training at this point? Um, if somebody you're talking about somebody who's already been selected for pilot training. Or even, or, or, or even just, approaching pilot training, or interested in in an Air Force career. Yeah, well, I'd you know, d depending on their experience, you know, if they've if they're just a civilian on the street and they've just got you know very little exposure to it, yeah, I'd talk through a lot of the process. Um, you know, I'm, I'm presume I'm talking to somebody who's already sold on going in the military, yeah. as opposed to trying to sell them on that. I yeah. would just explain. The process of, you know, what they need to do and how to optimize their chances of getting what they want, which is, you know, if it's a pilot training slot, the more you, uh, you have to go through the physical exam and uh, take admissions tests. So the, the, the physical is a huge uh, filter on the whole process. It's designed to be a filter. So that's the first thing is are you physically qualified? Um, eyes are a big deal. Uh, being 2020 uncorrected is the basic entry level. Uh, you can get waivers for being corrected, but there's just things like that that I would just say make sure you you meet the qualifications uh, so you're not getting your hopes up unnecessarily. But and then just going through whether they want to go through if they haven't gone to college yet an ROTC program if they want to go to the military academy, uh, the Air Force Academy is the sh surest way to get into pilot training um, they get you know they're if if they are qual if academy graduates are qualified and um, they have any desire at all they can go to pilot training that's mm -hmm. uh, just kind of the the first group that's selected and then rotc through college and then ots is the short course 90-day course that people go to coming out of college anyway i'd go through all of this in steps and then talk about pilot training itself as as a very intense program. You know, uh, there's a lot of academic work to be done as well as flying. And it's not much to say about telling somebody how to fly better because that's what you spend your entire pilot training year trying to do. Um, but then it's a competitive selection process. 
to get the aircraft you want coming out of Pelletier and the people at the top of the class get first choice and mm-hmm. and it kind of works down that way. So I, that's what I would do is just like I did, just kind of explain the process. I'd go into as much detail as somebody wanted to hear about it. Yeah. Well, Dad, thank you for talking to me. And I think uh, hopefully this is interesting to uh, our listeners and uh, uh, we'll uh, sign off here. But uh, any any parting words? Um, no, no. Thanks you for asking me to do it. It's been fun. Yeah. Awesome. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about maybe specific subjects in the future as, uh, you know, as they come up. So thanks, Dad. Thanks. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you might be listening to it if you're not already, or visit my website at nickrroberts.com for more information or to subscribe to my newsletter there. It comes out on a monthly basis. Thanks for listening and have a great day.